time to get into the Word. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2 again today. Been there for a while, might be there for a while yet. But we're right in the middle of Jesus' letter to the angel of the church of Pergamum or Pergamos, known historically as the Compromising Church, subtitled the Worldly Church. That's ultimately what happens to the church when you compromise. The church becomes more and more worldly. So we're going to pick it up in verse 15 and go through verse 17. Let me read those verses to you or with you. You also have some who follow what the Nicolaitans teach. So return to me and change the way you think and act, or I will come to you quickly and wage war against them with the sword from my mouth. Let the person who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give some of the hidden manna to everyone who wins the victory. I will also give each person a white stone with a new name written on it, a name that is known only to the person who receives it. Let's pray. Father God, we ask your blessing now upon this time of study in your word. We pray again for insight, understanding, and knowledge, Lord, imparted to us by your Holy Spirit as we study your word together. Lord, help us to make application for the present time, for our own church, for our own lives, as we look back at this historical church from the first century. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this study now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we left off last week in verse 14. First, as always, Jesus comes with a commendation. There are a couple of the seven churches that did not receive a commendation, which is not a good thing. But we left off in verse 14 where Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. That's not ever something you want to hear, is it? But it's important. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor and you're hoping for a good report, but You want the doctor to be honest with you too, don't you? Well, this is good, this is good, this is good, but we see a little problem here in this area of your blood work or your x-ray or whatever it might be. You wouldn't want him to lie to you, would you, and just tell you everything's fine? And then you go home a couple weeks later, you're dead. So it's important that God is honest with us. His word is a mirror. In the book of James, he likens it unto looking into the mirror We can deceive ourselves, but God will never deceive us. He will speak the truth to us, and it's for our own good. It's for our own benefit. And so Jesus said, okay, we did the commendations, but now I have a few things against you. You have among you those who follow what Balaam taught Balak. Balak trapped the people of Israel by encouraging them to eat food sacrificed to idols and to sin sexually. That comes right after the commendation of verse 13. He says, I know where you live. Satan's throne is there. So Jesus is saying to the people of Pergamum or Pergamos, he said, I know you guys are in a very difficult situation there in your city. The satanic, demonic influence is powerful. And we talked about this last week, how certain areas, certain regions geographically seem to be more uh, demonically influenced than others. Paul talks about principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. We all believe in guardian angels, right? And we're thankful for them. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says that the angels are God's ministering spirits sent forth to watch over those who are the heirs of salvation. And I've had many experiences in my life where I just knew there was an angel there protecting me. And oftentimes people around us benefit from it as well. 
Even people that aren't believers, because they're in the immediate vicinity of a believer, when something happens and God protects us, they receive the benefit of that as well. But so, with like everything in the spiritual realm, you can't believe in one half and not the other. See, some people want to only believe in God, and then they say, oh, there's no devil. Satan doesn't exist. Well, you can't believe in the Creator, God the Father, and not believe in Satan, because God tells us that Satan is real. He was the highest of all angelic beings until he rebelled against God and was kicked out of heaven. You can't have a lopsided theology. And then we have others, of course, who are steeped into the satanic side of the equation. And it's interesting how you'll find many people who profess believe in God but don't believe in Satan, but you won't find any Satan worshipers who don't believe in God. The only difference is they believe that God is the bad guy and Lucifer is the good guy. My point is this. They lived in a city, Pergamum, with a very strong... That was the temple of Asclepius, remember? The serpent god. Hello? Who is the serpent in the Bible? Satan. You hold on to my name and have not denied your belief in me even in the days of Antipas. And so that was one of the commendations. They were not ashamed of the name of Jesus like many people today seem to be. They did not deny their faith even in the face of martyrdom. He was my faithful witness who was killed in your presence where Satan lives. Man, you know, um, one of the designations in the past for Las Vegas has been Sin City. You ever heard that one? You know, and, and there are there are certain places that just have a reputation for being unusually and extremely sinful. And Pergamum was one of those places. But then now after that, Jesus has to issue this rebuke for their own good. Those whom the Lord loves, he also what? Chastens. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And we, I think we've covered this before, but just uh, as a reminder, the teaching or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was one, abuse of Christian liberty, which is called antinomianism. It's a form of Gnosticism that says, you know, you don't have to obey any of God's laws because you're free in Christ. You can do whatever you want. Antinomianism or abuse of Christian liberty. And second, false teaching of the Nicolaitans was the clerical hierarchy which elevates those in the, uh, the priesthood or the ministry as being at a higher level than everybody else. Jesus specifically warned against that. He told the disciples, do not lord it over people like the Gentiles do, but if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must become the servant of all, right? So the false teachings of the Nicolaitans Abuse of Christian liberty, clerical hierarchy. And he, he chastised the people of Pergamum. He says, you also have those who hold this doctrine or this teaching. Kind of the exact opposite of what we saw with the first church we looked at, the church of Ephesus, the Ephesian church in verse 6 of Revelation 2. But this you, Ephesus, have in your favor that you hate the deeds or practices of the Nicolaitans, which I, Jesus, also hate. So as we mentioned, this church of Pergamum had begun to embrace the teaching of the Nicolaitans 
How would we describe that in modern terminology? If it feels good, do it. You're free in Christ, bro. You can do whatever you want. You've been forgiven. You're eternally secure. Go out there and have a good time. And then the other side of the coin with the hierarchy of the, of the uh, clergy, oh, you're just a lay person. You need to go through the pastor or the priest to hear from God. Sadly, many different groups within the Church of Christ, the Christian church over the years, have embraced this attitude that the average everyday believer, which we're all average everyday believers really, but you're not capable of hearing from God. We need to tell you what God wants you to do. You're not capable of understanding the Bible. For centuries, I hate to target one specific group, but you're probably already thinking in this direction anyway. For centuries, the Catholic Church only had the Bible in Latin. The average person couldn't read Latin. And so they would sit in a service with a priest spouting everything out in Latin, and they didn't know what was going on. And the priest would tell the people, you can't understand this, we need to interpret it for you. Thank God we're in a whole different world today. We have the Bible in the... Con that was the big, amazing, revelatory thing that happened with the King James Bible. Now, there were a couple others leading up to it, but that was an amazing thing when the King James Bible was published in the early 1600s in the common language. It gave everyone access to the Word of God. And that was what, in this Nicolaitan-style church... That was their greatest fear, that the common people would actually come to understand God's word for themselves. Because Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. No longer under bondage to this Nicolaitan hierarchy within the church. We're God's authority on earth. We're infallible. No human being is infallible, folks. Not even the Pope. In fact, I'd say this current Pope is probably more fallible than ever. That guy's a mess. Sorry for any Catholics out there, but your current Pope is a piece of work. Okay? I've said more shocking things than that before. So, But another example, I don't want to just hammer on the Catholic Church. Uh, there was a modern movement that emerged probably in the, in the 70s. I'm not sure the exactly the start date, late 60s, early 70s, but it was called the shepherding movement, the shepherding doctrine. It was, it was a group of men, Don Basham, Derek Prince, Bob Mumford, Ern Baxter, and they birthed this shepherding movement. And with the shepherding movement, the shepherding doctrine, it kind of reestablished this Nicolaitan falsehood. With those that were involved in this movement, they would tell you everything about how to run your life. You had to get their permission before you could date someone or marry someone. You, you would have to bring your checkbook in and have one of the elders go through it and make sure that you're using your money properly, that you're tithing and so forth. I mean, it was amazingly hardcore control. And that always just has a destructive effect in people's lives. I had family members get involved in one group that was part of the shepherding movement. And uh, some of those churches are still around. I won't name their name. That might surprise you. Maybe I should. No. But in this group that my own family members were a part of, they weren't allowed to associate with anyone who wasn't a part of that church. 
even close family members, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers. Anybody who was not a part of that church was persona non grata. And they were also taught, if you ever leave this church, you're going to hell. These are some of the aspects of the shepherding movement, the shepherding doctrine, tied directly into this Nicolaitan teaching that goes back 2,000 years. So if you think this, that none of this stuff happens today, it still does. It still does. And even to a lesser degree, I just the Church of Christ, one branch of, I'm, maybe all branches, but I know at least one branch of the Church of Christ teaches if you weren't baptized in their denomination, then you will not go to heaven. First of all, you have to be baptized or you won't go to heaven. What happens if you get saved and here you go out on the street and get hit by a car and you're dead? Do you not go to heaven? I think not. They teach you must be baptized and it has to be in their church. Again, I'm not trying to slam anybody. I'm just giving you examples of this Nicolaitan false doctrine that creeps into the church and brings people under bondage. Jesus died to set us free. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's why Jesus came, to set us free from the law of sin and death. In a church where the priesthood dominates the laity, you could almost say sin is in a sense encouraged because theoretically the more people sin, the more dependent they are upon the priests and the pastors, the ministers, because then you have to have confession and penance and all these things, right? Jesus says, which thing I hate. He hates this doctrine. He doesn't hate uh, the, the sinner. He hates the sin. And he hates the false doctrine. All right, verse 16. So, he says, repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. As always, God's answer to our sin is to repent. And he always gives us that opportunity to turn away, in this case, to turn away from uh, greed, impurity, oppressive leadership, and turn back to him, to me, he says, or else I'll come to you quickly. Jesus is patient. God is patient. But we can determine from a study of the scriptures that he does have a limit. You may remember Noah's flood. Do you remember that one? God was patient for 120 years waiting for man to repent while Noah was building his ark. And Noah's out there daily while he's building the ark. He's also preaching to the people who are gathering around to figure out what this crazy guy's doing. He's building a boat on the middle of dry land. What's up? So Noah's preaching the gospel to them while he's building the ark. But God's patience reached its limit and he destroyed the world with a flood. How many of you have heard of places called Sodom and Gomorrah? God's patience ran out there too. And even with his own people, because here we're talking about the people of the church of Pergamum, believers. Jesus says, repent, or I'm going to come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. God became impatient with Moses. Moses had married a non-Israelite, Zipporah, and he had not circumcised his sons. God instituted circumcision under Abraham, remember? 
And that was the sign of the covenant between God and man. We have a new covenant now. The new covenant is the blood and the body of Christ. But Moses had not done his due diligence. And so in Exodus 4.24, along the way they stopped for the night. The Lord met Moses and tried to kill him. Moses! Can you believe that? The Deliverer. The Old Testament Messiah. The one who led the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And God tried to kill him. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin. Don't try this at home. Oh, well, you can if you want to, but I don't recommend it. And touched Moses' feet with it. (laughs) Hey, guys, can you imagine? Your wife circumcises your son and throws it down at your feet. Pretty wild. She said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. What did I sign up for here with you, Mo? So the Lord let him alone. His wife saved his life by circumcising his son. It was because of the circumcision that she said at that time, you are a bridegroom of blood. And then another great man of God, David, remember his great sin with Bathsheba? That was bad enough, but then to cover it up, He sent her husband Uriah to the very front of this heated battle and he was killed. Basically, David murdered him. He set him up to be killed. So he commits adultery. He commits murder. I mean, the encouraging thing about the story is that there's no sin that God won't forgive if we're truly repentant. That doesn't mean you don't have to pay the consequences. And this is the consequences for David. 2 Samuel 12, 13 Nathan, the prophet, confronted David. He tells him this story. There was this guy who had all these sheep and cattle. He was wealthy, prosperous. And then there was this poor guy. He had one little sheep. And this wealthy guy steals his one sheep. And David said, that guy needs to be punished. Nathan says, you're the guy. Because you stole Uriah's wife. You had all these other wives. You had everything you could ask for. And you had to steal Uriah's wife. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, you're darn right. No. He said, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. Why? Because David was a man after God's own heart. God knew David's heart. The moment he was confronted, he was broken. He was humbled. He was repentant. And so Nathan says, you will not die. Although what David did was definitely deserving of death. But since you have shown total contempt for the Lord by this affair, and that's what people don't understand sometimes, I think. When we as believers in particular make a deliberate choice to disobey God, and we think, it's okay, he'll forgive me, I can get away with this. But Nathan says, David, you showed direct contempt for God. Which of us as believers would ever want to do that? But sometimes we do. You've shown contempt for the Lord. And so, by this affair, the son that is born to you must die. And so, the first child that Bathsheba bore to David did die after birth. So again, we see, you know, I think it was Peter that wrote, judgment begins with the house of God, the household of God. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? 
And again, many times it's sad that as believers, we think, oh, I'm saved now, I'm forgiven, I can kind of get away with a little of this and a little of that, right? No, we're held to a higher standard because we're here to be a light in this world, to the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We're to be a witness and an example. And so God does chasten those whom he loves. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Against who? Against those who are following these false teachings. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, we've already talked about that. That's his word. His word is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. He will expose them with the truth of his word and they will be judged accordingly. And it's definitely, folks, wouldn't you say, more desirable to be fighting for God than against him, right? But just think about this for a moment. We'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Usually when something happens in our lives, something troubling, undesirable, we always blame the devil, right? But we read earlier about uh, Balaam. And if you remember the story of Balaam, he's riding on his donkey, or he's got his donkey there. Remember, the donkey stops in the middle of the road and won't move. Why? Because the donkey sees an angel of the Lord with a big sword in his hand. Do you remember that? And the donkey starts talking to him. It wouldn't be the last time a jackass would speak to somebody. There's a bunch of them doing it right now. But that angel was there to stop Balaam. The donkey saved his life. We don't realize sometimes we think we're blaming the devil, but God is the one who's opposing us because we're not walking in the light. We're not walking according to his will. We're in rebellion. We're in disobedience. But rather than come to grips with that fact and repent, we want to blame it on the devil. We give him far too much credit. We've talked about this recently. Now, he can't do anything to us without God's permission. And if God allows it, he will use it for good. And that's what I'm praying with this pandemic, what the devil intends for evil. The devil is the destroyer. He hates the human race. The thief comes but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But just like Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I pray that God will use good. He'll bring good out of this pandemic. We don't want to see anyone get sick. We don't want to see anyone die. But the reality of it is we all live in mortal, perishable, corruptible bodies. And at some point, these bodies are going to have to go. That's why I said recently, eternal life matters. It's a whole ball game. We don't want to ever find ourselves in the position that God is fighting against us. He resists the proud, the Bible says, but gives grace to the humble. So the next time where we're sensing some resistance in our life, maybe the first thing we ought to do is ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and see if there's some pride stirring around in there that's causing God to resist us because we're being prideful, we're being arrogant, we're being presumptuous, we're presuming upon the grace of God. Let the Holy Spirit search our hearts. Because no matter what the source is, if there's resistance, if there's difficulty, then God is either creating it or allowing it 
to get our attention. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is becoming a familiar refrain. It, it happens eight times in Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear. And we've learned from chapter 1, God's Word has only beneficial to those who listen in an active sense. Not passively, but actively. Revelation 1.3, Blessed is he who reads. So the first thing is you've got to read it. You can't just kind of hold the Bible up to your brain and just kind of hope you absorb it by osmosis. Kind of like people can do now with their Apple phones and watches and stuff. You can take one Apple phone, put it up against another, and it'll transfer all the data. It doesn't work that way with this. You've got to read it. But it doesn't stop there. We read it and hear it. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear and again, we're talking about spiritual ears, are we not? Let him who has ears to hear. You read it, you allow the Holy Spirit to implant it into your heart and mind, and then you keep those things which are written in it. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things. You can hear it all day long, but if you don't follow it, it doesn't do you any good, right? Keep those things. Hang on to them. Hold on to them. Keep also means to observe, to obey. There are people that know the Bible frontwards and backwards. They just don't obey any of it. They just don't follow it. It's like, again, we use the medical analogy. You can have a full diagnosis of your condition, you can have all the proper prescriptions and the description of what they are and how often to take them. But if you don't take them, it doesn't do you any good, right? You know all the right stuff, but unless you apply it to your own life, there's no benefit to you. And then it says, for the time is near, Revelation 1.3. It's time to read, to hear, to keep, for the time is near. Yet sadly, the Bible tells us in the last days there'll be a great falling away. But the fact of the matter is it's so close. This is no time to drift, to slip, to slide. This is the time to draw near to God as much as we possibly can and to one another. It shouldn't take a rocket scientist to look around at what's happening in this world and realize we need to cling tightly to God and to one another. Amen? To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. This is another recurring theme, as you've noticed throughout uh, these churches that we've studied so far. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, or Pergamum. The overcomer. The blessing, the promise, the pattern that we see here in chapters 2 and 3 is one, commendation, two, rebuke or warning, three, promise of blessing to whom? To those who overcome. Again, some people just like to randomly grab on to any and every promise in the Bible and just say, oh, this is all for me. Well, no, it's not. It's only for you if you are faithful to God, if you're obedient to God, if you're an overcomer, 
Regardless of what those around us are doing, we must individually and as a church focus on being overcomers. This was the compromising church, the worldly church. They were not overcoming, they were being overcome. And that's what we see in so much of the church today. The church is being overcome by the deceptions of the enemy, the philosophies of men, the beliefs of this world which whose mastermind is Satan. More and more parts of the church are being overcome rather than being overcomers. For these believers in Pergamum, it was overcoming the satanic influence in their city, being faithful even to the point of death, which represents outside attack. Historically, anytime the church has been attacked from the outside, it just gets stronger. It may have to go underground, but it gets stronger spiritually, dynamically. But in addition, they had to overcome the false doctrines of compromise for financial gain, using the example of Balak and Balaam. False freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom to do whatever you want. Freedom in Christ means you're free to obey God. You're no longer compelled and propelled forward by your own fleshly desires. You have freedom to say no to the flesh and yes to God. That's true freedom. That's true freedom. When people say, well, I know it was wrong, but I just couldn't help myself. That's right. But God could, and he will if you let him, if you ask him to. They had to overcome the false doctrines of compromise for financial gain, false freedom in Christ, and a domineering priesthood. This is attacked from within, and this is what will tear down and destroy the church, is attacked from within. And so Satan knows that he doesn't mind initiating persecution from without, because he loves to see God's people under duress. But he's especially proficient at sowing discord from within the church, sowing confusion from within the church, sowing these false teachings and doctrines from within, because a house divided against itself, as Jesus said, cannot stand. So they were enduring, they were overcoming, attacked from without, even up to the point of death, of physical death, martyrdom. And they were also overcoming this inward attack of deception in the church. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. This, I love this. In Exodus 16, remember how God supernaturally provided sustenance for the Israelites by sending manna from heaven? Do you remember that? And it was like they were these wafers. They tasted like honey. Can you imagine eating food that came down out of heaven? We're going to do that one day when we get there. But Jesus says, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. So he's referencing manna and in terms of spiritual food. Jesus promises these believers in Pergamum if they will resist the temptations of the world and of the false teachers, they will experience his supernatural provision in their lives. The ultimate, of course, being eternal life. What did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. He is our sustenance. And that's why oftentimes you'll find that some of the poorest, most deprived people are the richest in the faith. Because they have no earthly resources to grab onto. All they have is God. And James talks about that in his book. 
He says those who are poor in the things of this world are rich in the things of the Spirit. The hidden manna. And when I believe when Jesus taught the disciples in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.11, give us this day our daily bread. Most people immediately think of physical food, right? Lord, not only would I like my daily bread, a nice ribeye wouldn't be bad either. But he's talking about so much more than that. Our daily bread is everything we need mentally, spiritually, emotionally, as well as physically. And it's in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is reminding his disciples that he is our sustenance, the very source of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. Give us this day our daily bread, body, soul, and spirit. And Jesus is promising that sustenance, that hidden manna, the manna that you don't see with your physical eyes, to those who overcome. I love this comment by Erwin Lutzer. He says, if we are not nourished by the bread from heaven, we will satiate ourselves with crumbs from the world. Isn't that a good one? I'll read it again. If we are not nourished by the bread from heaven, we will satiate ourselves with crumbs from the world. And then he makes another promise. Not only will he give us the hidden manna, I will give him a white stone. You might wonder, what in the heck does that mean? In John's day, John the Apostle, who's writing, uh, transcribing this book of Revelation, there was a custom, first of all, of voting for the acquittal of an accused person by using a white stone. But there was also the custom in the Greek athletic games of giving a white stone to the winner of the contest or to gladiators at Roman games who had won the admiration of the people and had been allowed to retire from further combat. So there are a number of situations where a white stone came into play as a symbol of reward, of honor, of accomplishment. And in ancient times, white stones were given to people with their names written on them as invitations to special banquets. So in a sense, you were being invited to a rock concert. <laughs> but it's kind of similar to the uh, the modern practice of sending engraved invitations. You ever Anybody ever get an engraved invitation? What do I have to do? Send you an engraved invitation? But in those days, it was a rock with your name on it, a white stone. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give them a white stone a symbol of honor, of recognition for being overcomers and a new name. Now, this is significant in terms historically. Remember, Abram, Abraham was named Abram. But then as he became a follower of the one true living God, God changed his name to Abraham. Jacob became Israel. Simon, Peter, Saul became Paul all indicative of the fact that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so this new name may reflect some aspect of our overcoming, like Victor, Valiant. Remember that old comic strip, Prince Valiant? Maybe we'll get a name like that. Victor, Valiant, Faithful, True, Obedient. In the Lord of the Rings, remember Aragorn was called Strider. Remember that? A strider is someone who has long strides. Some kind of a special name indicative of some personal aspect of our overcoming in Christ. And then he says, which no one knows except 
him who receives it. So this is really cool. It's just a special little nickname that Jesus gives us, and only he and we know it. It'll have to be a special private name just between us and the Lord. Just like many of us have special private terms of endearment for each other, right? Pumpkin, you know, honey child, whatever it might be. A special name given to us by Jesus. I think that's really cool. And it'll be very affirming, very uplifting. It's amazing to think about that to me anyway. But here's the point. There's no blessing for the church or individual believer who is overcome by the world. The blessings are for those who overcome the world by the blood of the Lamb. As we read Revelation 12, 11, and they over, overcame him, the Antichrist, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And yet, sadly, many people are, today are embarrassed to talk about blood, right? The blood of Christ. How embarrassing. You serve a God who bled, who was nailed to a cross. We don't want to talk about blood around here. That's, ew, that's gross. No, we should cherish and honor the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You know, I don't know if this is something that you've thought about or worked on. Many times, it's a little sad. I don't judge people for it. But I find a lot of times people can't really articulate their testimony. And a lot of times we'll have, when we have baptisms, we'll ask someone to give a little brief testimony and it, it, I don't know why, but it seems like it's hard oftentimes for them to articulate. I would encourage you to work on that because we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Give it some thought. Sit down and write it out if you need to. But we're called upon to be instant, in season and out of season, to give to every man an answer for the hope that is within us, right? And it needs to be more defined than just, well, God help me be a better person. Well, that's good. That's not really... A full testimony. God, help me get a better job or what have you. No, no. You need to be able to define exactly what it is He's done for you. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. You repented. You confessed your sins. He forgave you. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of you and He's given you the gift of eternal life. Now you're a brand new person in Christ Jesus. Those are the kind of things you need to be able to tell people. That's the testimony. That's the gospel that can save them. You can go to any number of self-help people or systems, Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking and so forth, and talk about how you, you got a better job or you made more money. You need to talk about the one who saved your soul. That's the testimony. So I encourage you, if you, again, there's no judgment here. I'm not harassing anybody or putting anybody down, but I'm just saying as a believer, we overcome we're called to be overcomers, not to be overcome by this world, but to overcome the world by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Work on that. Make sure you can properly define and articulate your testimony. If you need to, sit down and write it out. 1 John 2.17 The world is passing away. There's an old expression called hitching your wagon to this thing or that thing, hitching your wagon to one political party or another, one political candidate or hitching your wagon, whatever it might be. 
But the world is passing away. You don't want to hitch your wagon to this world. And the lust of it, that's passing away too. All these people who are now involved in indulging the lusts of the flesh. Boy, we've heard a lot lately about Jeffrey Epstein and now Jelaine Maxwell, right? The horrible things that those people did to these girls over the years. It's hard to even fathom the level of depravity that these people were engaging in. And it wasn't just Jeffrey Epstein and Jelaine Maxwell. There are other very prominent people who were involved. And you know what? I hope and pray that they will be exposed and dealt with. But I guarantee you one thing, if not in this life, in the life to come, they will. But it's passing away. Anybody who engages in fulfilling or attempting to fulfill the desires, the lusts of the flesh, you're hitching your wagon to the wrong train. The world is passing away, the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Everybody wants to live forever, but not that many people really want to obey God and do the will of God. But it's a package deal, folks. It's a package deal. Finally, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. And so we're called to overcome these things and the rewards of the blessings are eternal. They're not temporary. They are everlasting. And that's what we should be striving for. Let's stand. We're going to pray and then Nikki's going to lead us in a closing song. As we have been doing as of late, I would like to ask anyone this morning that has a special prayer request or a special need, if you'd raise your hand, we want to pray for you. Just lift your hand up. The Lord sees it. We see it. And we want to agree with Him. Father God, we lift all these up to You. Have the hands raised. Lord, we know in ancient times people would lift their hands to You as they prayed. And we lift our hands up to You now and we call upon You for grace and mercy that You'd pour out Your blessings upon these folks, whether it be for physical healing, wisdom, guidance, direction, mental and emotional issues. Lord, whether it's for them or someone close to them, a loved one, a friend, a family member, a co-worker. Lord, You know every heart. You know what's on each of these hearts. We ask that you'd hear their cry, hear their prayer, Lord. We agree together that you would work in their lives, give them the desires of their heart, pour out your blessings upon them, give them comfort, give them peace, give them strength. Lord, work in each and every one of these situations. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. We ask you to receive our offering of praise now as we close with this final song. Pray for safety as we travel home today. Throughout this week, Lord, for your hand of protection to be upon us during this time of pandemic. We thank you, God, that greater are you who is in us than he that is in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.